You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. So thankful for that beautiful rendition of Psalm 40, which is where we're going to turn as we continue in our series, Summer in the Psalms. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 40. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle to help people out who might have left their Bible at home or don't own a Bible. Psalm uh, 40. Psalm 40. The atmosphere was getting pretty intense in the Windmill Lane studios in Dublin, Ireland back in 1982. This young fledgling rock band was working on their third record and they had uh, written and recorded um, 11 tracks for their newest album and they needed a last song. They needed a final song to end off this, uh, this record. And the record was really dark. It was about uh, war and strife that was happening all around uh, the world. And, and they were trying to find a way to sort of bring closure to this uh, record. But the, the studio manager on Windmill Lane was getting impatient. And he's looking at his watch, looking at the clock, looking at these young guys and saying, okay, enough already, okay? I've got a new group coming in. I want to push you aside. And so just come up with something, record it, and and be done. And uh, they were really running out of time. I mean, the bass player, he had already gone home. And uh, they only had a little under an hour to throw something together. And so the three band members that were left started uh, working uh, together, started jamming, and a chord progression was established, and then a melody, but they needed lyrics. And so uh, the singer started singing a passage from the Bible that he had maybe memorized, or maybe they had a Bible with you. He, he started quoting a Psalm of 40. And as the song progressed, the singer sang, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my cry. He, he lifted me up from the miry clay, and many will see, and many will hear. And the whole thing from uh, initial idea to finished recording took about 40 minutes. And the song was called 40. The fledgling young rock band was U2. And... Decades later, hundreds of songs later, hundreds of live performances later, there's only a handful of U2 songs that are played more frequently in concerts than 40. Than this song where U2, they found themselves in some sort of desperate situation. And where did they turn? They turned to the 40th Psalm. And Psalm 40 was written out of a desperate situation. It, it's a psalm that people for centuries have turned to this particular passage when, when they find themselves in a desperate situation. And listen, I don't know anything about the, the spiritual life or the faith journey of Bono or The Edge or Larry Mullen Jr. or Adam Clayton, but I know about my own spiritual journey. And I'm not here to talk about you too. I'm here to talk about Jesus. And I'm here to talk about you. And and I'm I'm here to to have us walk through Psalm 40. It lays out sort of a map with regards to how should we respond when we need a rescue? And how then should we reflect when we have been 
rescued. And so we're going to be talking today about responding to, reflecting upon the idea that God is a rescuing God. And really, after we reflect, the only way that we ought to respond to our rescuer is to rejoice. And that's what we find here, that those people who have been rescued are people who rejoice. And so with that as the, as the backdrop, we're going to study Psalm 40 now. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to see, as this psalm uh, is, is, is laid out for us here, we're going to see four characteristics, four characteristics of someone who has been rescued, who has experienced God coming through for them. And so let's bow our heads together and, and pray as we prepare to hear from his word. And so God, we've, we've sung this passage to you just now, and now we want to have you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Clearly you've been moving today, Lord, among your people. Your presence is here. And God, I know that as we get ready to talk about the, the miry clay and the pit of destruction, I know that there are many here who have experienced your rescue. But Lord, I know that even right now, there are people who are in the pit themselves. That this isn't part of their past. This is part of their present. And so God, I pray that you would speak words of comfort. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself as a rescuer today and that you would build our confidence and our faith in you as we reflect upon this powerful passage of scripture. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we talk about the characteristics, let's, let's take a look at these first three verses that describe the rescue. It, it begins by saying, uh, to the choir master, and, and that it was a psalm of David. And so David had written this song and then entrusted it to the choir master to arrange the choir so that it could be sung and to establish the melody and the harmonies and the rhythms and and all of, all of the musical components. And the lyrics to the psalm say, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. Waiting patiently. Uh, this isn't, you know, sort of... Um, McDonald's drive-through waiting. This isn't a doctor's office waiting for your turn. This isn't just sort of sitting passively and waiting for your turn to, uh, to go forward. No, the, in the Hebrew, it's actually, it's, it says, I waited, waited for the Lord. The word wait is, is repeated. I waited waitingly. There was, there was waitingness to the way that I waited. It, it, there's a repetition of the word to indicate not passivity, but intensity. That this person, this is an intense situation. And then it says that he inclined to me. Uh, inclining is, is describing, you know, an angle. That, that when the person cried out to the Lord, when they waited, the Lord inclined himself. It's as though he's bending forward. And why is he bending forward? To reach down and to draw the psalmist out of the pit. That is the kind of God that we serve who doesn't lean away from us but leans towards us because he is a rescuer. And then he takes us out of the pit of destruction, out of the, the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. This miry bog, this pit 
of destruction. I remember when I was a teenager, I was on a canoe trip with, with Camp Minioe, and we were up in the Tomogamy uh, region of Ontario. Just a beautiful, a beautiful uh, place. And, and so we were paddling through these gorgeous lakes and looking at the trees and the hills and the nature all around us. But, but then the lake kind of came to an end. And then we had to do something called portage. And I think they used the word portage to sort of disguise what you actually need to do. Because portaging is not pleasant. That means that you've run out of water and you actually need to move forward on land before you can put your canoe in the water again. And so the canoe that has been holding three people, now you have to hold it up and walk a, a kilometer, two kilometers, three kilometers on land and your tent and your food and your gear gets put on your back. Portaging is not pleasant. It's not pleasant in a miry bog either. And uh, I remember as I was uh, walking along, we came across this jet black muck that we needed to walk through. It was a dense forest, but the path was this jet black miry bog. And that we had no choice but to walk through it. And I remember walking through and I had these trendy, bright colored, remember those Teva Velcro sandals that were really cool uh, back when I was a teenager? I had a pair of those on and, and I'm this, you know, canoe tripping, outdoorsy kind of guy. And I'm, so I'm walking along into this miry muck and then all of a sudden my foot went down that deep into the muck and then came out and there was no sandal on my foot. And I looked down in the hole, I reached down into the hole, the sandal was gone. One of the leaders on the trip was this big burly football type guy. He went down to his armpits into this muck. Now I was able to pull my, my leg out, but this, this grown man, this strong burly football player type guy needed to reach out his hands and have us pull him out of the miry bog. That is the picture that's being described here in Psalm 40. You're in too deep. There's no way that you can get yourself out of the situation. Furthermore, the language that he uses here, it's miry. You know, life is messy. And I'm thankful that, that our scripture is not sanitized. It's not, it's not on this higher plane. It is so real. The, the messiness of life is described for us here in this miry bog. We get ourselves into some serious messes, don't we? We, we find ourselves in some miry bog. Sin just, just ruins so much of the enjoyment of life. Suffering can be so painful and difficult. Life is messy. But we have a God who hears us in the midst of the mess and reaches down and rescues us. And that's what the psalmist experienced. And even though he was on this 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 ground that was soft and, 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 and there was no stability to it. He took him and he put his feet on a rock and he stood secure. Maybe you're here today and you're in a pit. You need to cry out to God today. You need to recognize that as you cry, he's not leaning away to, from you. He's leaning towards you. And you might think it's too messy. It, it's too hard. I'm in too deep. That's right when God wants to work. That's, that's, that's the kind of God that we 
serve. Maybe you can think back to a time in your life where you were in that kind of a pit. And maybe you can reflect upon how God rescued you. And if that's the case, then this will be true of you. Look what happens in verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Here's the first thing. If you've been rescued by God, you are going to be a person who is characterized by joyful worship. By joyful worship. And that's what this person does. Notice, God does all of it. He's, he's the one who inclined. He's the one who drew me up. He's the one who set my feet on a rock. And also, verse 3, he's the one who puts the song in our hearts. God is the one who makes us worship and respond and rejoice when he rescues us. And he's, we are a church that desires to have joyful Worship. We want to crank up the volume, not just on the instruments and the speakers, but on our voices to sing with joy because God is a rescuing God. So he says, many will see and many will fear and put their trust in the Lord. He, he, he wants as many people as possible to hear his testimony about how God has rescued him and redeemed him. Verse 4, he says, blessed is the man who trusts or sorry, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. The NIV translates that, those who go astray after false gods. You see, it's about worship. It's about worshiping not people, not the proud, self-sufficient, self-righteous people. Not all the false idols in our world today placing our trust in our possessions or in our power or in our personality or, or, or putting our, our, our trust in people, but trusting in the Lord, not turning aside to what is a false or what is a lie. And then as he's, as he's thinking about this song, he says, this is going to have to be a long song because look at verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. David says, this song could go on forever. I'm just, I'm just getting to the beginning of what God has done for me. This miry bog experience that I have with him, that's just the beginning. I could go on and on. He's multiplied his wondrous deeds for me. And that's, that's what we want in our hearts. That's what we want for this church always wanting for uh, one more song at the end of this. Can we just sing a little more? God has done so much. Can I, can I just tell you a little bit more about what God has done in my life? It's just not enough. You can barely put it into words, all that God has done. Those that have been rescued will rejoice. Those that God saves will sing. It's who we are. As rescued people, we are a joyful people. We are people who sing and who sing with exuberance and with joy. But worship is not just about singing. Worship is not just about coming to church and singing some songs. It's not just about the externals and what's happening that everyone else can see. Worship ultimately is about the heart. And so jot this down in your notes. That there's joyful worship. There's also absolute obedience. Worship, worship really begins when we seek to trust in God's word, trust in his promises, and to obey him. 
If you look at what he says next in verses 6 to 8, he says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. The external rituals of worship, they're important, but that's not what truly delights God. Those external things point to something that should be happening in the heart. He says, but you have given me an open ear. Beside the word ear, in your, if you have an ESV, there should be a footnote that, that, that better describes the, the literal Hebrew. It says, you have dug out ears for me. And, and what God delights in is someone who listens to God's word and lets it, doesn't just bang off our thick skull, but he has dug an ear and only God can do that. God puts the song in our hearts. God also opens our ear to hear his word so that we would respond in faith and respond by living a life of worship. He says, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Verse seven, then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it was written of me. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Worship is fundamentally internal. He's not saying that the external things are unimportant, but he's saying ultimately the external things point to the internal. Jesus said, these people praise me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. All over the Old Testament, we have all of the, Isaiah chapter one, all of these remarks of people, there's all of these sacrifices. But what really matters is what's happening in the heart. The sacrifice was supposed to show the contrition and the commitment within a person's heart. Now, it's important for us to read verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8 in their historical and their theological context. There's a reason why David zeroes in on sacrifice and the limitations of sacrifice as Worship, Because as David was writing, David would have been thinking about his predecessor. He would have been thinking about Saul. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Because there's a, there's a historical backdrop to Psalm 40 that's going to help us make sense of why David chose to, wrote, to write what he wrote here in this beautiful Psalm. So it's great to hear the pages of God's word turning in the hands of God's people. 1 Samuel chapter 10, and let's look at verse 1. The people of God have asked Samuel to set apart a king for them. And so in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. That's a, that's a symbol of anointing. And he, and he said, and he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince or king over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And so they have this anointing ceremony where Saul is set apart. It's like a coronation. He's been established as the king. Now look down at verse 8, and he gives them some further instructions. He says, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and and show you what you shall do. And so here's an instruction that Saul is supposed to obey. He's saying, I want you to wait seven days. We're going to worship the Lord together. We're going to have an external ritual. We're going to do a sacrifice. 
seven days from now. So Samuel says, I'm going to meet you in Gilgal in seven days. But listen, the next seven days were pretty eventful in Saul's life. If you look at, at, at chapter 10, he's proclaimed king. Then as soon as he's proclaimed king, the Ammonites show up, this rival nation. And Saul has no choice. He needs to, to muster an army. He's only been king for a matter of days, but he musters an army. He goes out against all odds, trusting in the Lord, and he fights the Ammonites, and he defeats them. And then you get to chapter 12 and chapter 13, and the, the Philistines now show up. And now, again, it's his first week as king. Now he's having to fight another enemy, a battle on another front, and he... he he wins the initial battle against the Philistines, so things seem to be going super well, and there's only a couple more days before he's supposed to go and worship with Samuel. But then the Philistines start amassing this humongous army, and all of the people and all of Saul's soldiers who had fought so valiantly against the Ammonites and against the Philistines the first time, then they start deserting Saul, and they start taking off and running and hiding and so Saul is panicking. He doesn't know what to do. He's experiencing. He's in this miry clay. He's in this pit. And so he thinks the way to get out of it, the way to sort of build morale among his soldiers, is we need to have, we need to have a worship service. We need to go through this external ritual. But Samuel seemed to be not running with Saul's timeline. Verse 8, it says, He waited seven days. The time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Now look at verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Listen, God is rarely early, but he's never late. Still on day seven, as soon as Saul tried to jump the gun, as soon as Saul disobeyed God's word, as soon as it was finished, as soon as Saul took matters into his own hands, here was what Saul had been waiting for all of this time. Have you not experienced that in your own life? God tells you to do it this way, and you say, well, I, I don't have the patience to do that. I, I don't have the trust. I'm going I'm to manipulate it and do things my own way. And then, as soon as it's done, we see how God was already planning to come through. He's, he's rarely early, but he's always on time. Now look at verse 13. This is what Samuel says. He says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever over Israel. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That is David. David was going to be the king who was going to understand it wasn't just the external rituals, it was about the heart. And then if you go to chapter 15, Saul disobeys God again. He was commanded by God to go and to defeat the Amalekites and to, and to devote all of them to destruction. God had been patient for over 400 years. He was patient with the Amalekites after what they did to Moses when the people were leaving Egypt, you know that story when Moses had his arms in the air and Joshua was fighting? That was against the Amalekites. They're the original enemies of the people of God. The first people to, to initiate war against Israel. And God said, it's judgment time. And God says, I want you to destroy everything. But Saul decided to keep all of the wealth, 
all of the livestock. And Saul tried to cover up for it. Guess how he tried to cover up for his disobedience? He tried to cover up for it with a sacrifice. And he tried to cover up with it, even though his heart was selfish and filled with pride and, and filled with greed. He thought he could cover it up with something external. And look at what Samuel says to him at chapter 15, verse 22. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So this historical context, this is very real for David. David knows that worship is more than singing. Worship is more than sacrifices. Worship is about the heart. He knew how Saul got it wrong, and David wanted to get things right. That's why he wrote these things in Psalm 40. But why is it saying in the scroll of the book, it is written of me? Well, that's, that's pointing something even beyond Saul, something that goes back really to the time of Moses, to the book of Deuteronomy. So turn with me there to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17. In order for us to properly understand Psalm 40, we need to understand the, the background here. And then we're going, to look at, uh, uh, we're going to look here at chapter 17 and look at verse 18. This is, a, this is the law of God. Centuries before Israel had a king, it was commanded that this is what the king was supposed to do. Verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So the king was supposed to write out his own copy, not just of the Ten Commandments, but of the whole law that's recorded. Verse 19, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And so David said, I am going to be like that king that's written about in the scroll. I am going to delight to do your will, as it says in Psalm 40, verse 8. But here's the truth. Even though David did have a heart after God, even though David did love the law of God, he still broke God's law, didn't he? David also had to write in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, cleanse me, because his heart had not fully obeyed the Lord. He had disobeyed the Lord. And so moving forward, we knew that David couldn't be the ultimate fulfillment of Deuteronomy 17. And all of David's descendants all failed just like him until ultimately the, 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 the root and offspring of David, Jesus Christ, came into the world. He is the ultimate king who fulfills what Deuteronomy 17 says, and who lived and succeeded where Saul and David and so many other kings failed. And Jesus, is, is what Jesus accomplished is described in Hebrews chapter 10. One more passage to go through before we turn back to Psalm 40. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's turn there so that we're fitting this not only in its historical context now, but its theological context. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 verse 5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings have, you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. You see, Jesus 
fulfilled what David wrote in Psalm 40. He is the one who truly followed and obeyed in absolute obedience. He is the one that was written about in the scroll of the look. Didn't Jesus say in John 5, Moses wrote about me? Didn't Jesus tell the disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24, let me begin with Moses and show you through all of the scripture how everything that I did was predicted. Well, Psalm 40 was one of those things. That Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the one who delights to obey God's word. So then how do we, as New Testament Christians, how do we read Psalm 40? Do we just read it? in its historical context and say, well, that's why David wrote that, because of Saul? Do we just read that in its theological context and say, well, ultimately Jesus is the fulfillment of that? No, we can read this on a heart level ourselves because Jesus told us that he has given us a new heart and that even though our hearts were spewing things like murder and theft and adultery and out of the heart the mouth speaks, Jesus promised in John 7 that everyone who believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He promised us a new heart And so you can say, as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him by faith, you can pray Psalm 40, 6 to 8, and mean it. And say, I do want to do your will, O God. I'm not perfect. But you have saved me. You have given me a new heart. You have changed me. Now, those of you who are paying close attention to Hebrews 10, you've, you've probably been reading it over and over and thinking, something's not, something's not right here. If he's quoting Psalm 40 in Hebrews 10, why does it say at the end of verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me? Why does it say a body you've prepared for me when in Psalm 40 it says, and that part it says, your ears, my ears you've opened. So what? Did the author of Hebrews distort the Bible? Does he misquote Psalm 40? What is going on here? What did David really say? Did he say, a body you've prepared for me? Or did he say, you've opened my ears? And sometimes people can come across passages like that and they can lose confidence in the authority and the clarity of the Bible. And and what's the Bible really saying? And why is there a discrepancy between what's written here? But I want to say, if if that's kind of troubling you, let me encourage you. And let me lay out for you another timeline, okay? So David wrote Psalm 40 around 1000 BC, and the book of Hebrews was written before AD 70. And, And that's about under 70 years after Christ was born, and, and the cross, the, his death, burial, resurrection, all of that had happened. But why is it that Psalm 40 sounds different when it's written in Hebrews 10 than it is in Psalm 40? Well, in 300 AD, 70 Hebrew scholars who were also fluent in Greek got together. And these 70 scholars started a translation project. They started with the first five books of the Bible, and they translated it from Hebrew into Greek, and there were 70 of them. And so they were called the 70 or the Septuagint. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint, or you might see somewhere in a footnote or in a commentary the phrase LXX. That's the number 70 in Roman numerals. And in the Greek translation, they were looking at the Hebrew and trying to express it into, into Greek. Now, 
in a city like Brampton, and in a room like this, probably 75% of the people here can speak multiple languages. That's just the reality of living in Brampton. And, and those people who are fluent in two languages know very well. I'm not one of them, but I know that you know this. You know that there are sometimes phrases in Hindi that don't always make sense in English. And sometimes there's phrases in English that, that, that don't really work in Farsi. And sometimes, there's, sometimes you can say something in Patois that doesn't make sense in regular English. And, and, and so there's, there's these differences, isn't there? And it's hard. And so what happened is when they were translating Psalm 40 into Greek, the scholars were thinking, okay, you've opened my ears, which would have been a common way to speak in Hebrew. You dig out your ears, listen to what I'm saying. But there was no Greek expression to convey that. So then the translators think, well, what is he trying to say? He's trying to say that I'm, I am totally ready. I am listening. I am totally prepared to obey whatever you say. And so to translate it into Greek, he said, my body, a body you have prepared. I am ready to totally obey you. And so that got translated from Hebrew into Greek. So then, now, when we start translating the Bible into English, now we're looking at Psalm 40, which is written in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. We're looking at Hebrews 10, which is written in the New Testament in Greek. And so what we have in our English Bibles is this situation. We have Psalm 40. Can we get the next slide up on the screen here? So the book of Psalms is translated from Hebrew into English. And the book of Hebrews, could it be any more confusing to explain this, that Hebrews is actually, has, anyway. Hebrews is translated from Greek into English. And so the fact that there's a difference in Hebrews 10 and Psalm 40 doesn't show. You see, critics of Christianity say, well, the Bible's been translated and translated. It's like a, like a game of broken telephone. It's not a game of broken telephone because everyone was writing everything down. And so when we're reading Hebrews 10, we know what he means in Hebrews 10 because we have the Hebrew version as well. So it's not that the Bible can't be trusted. It can be trusted all the more because we have it in multiple languages and we can cross-reference and compare. So don't lose confidence in God's word because of those things. Most often when we come across those discrepancies, it actually builds our confidence in the authority of God's word. What God once said has been preserved for us here in this book. And you can be confident that when you're reading the Bible, you are reading the word of God. God. And so let's get back now to studying it and reading it. Psalm 40. Look at verse 9 with me now. It says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. Part of obedience is worship. Again, he's worshiping. He's witnessing. He's telling as many people as possible about how God has rescued him and redeemed him. So, up until this point, he has been talking about what happened in the past when he was rescued in his miry bog. Verse 11, we now have a transition. Verse 11, he's now talking not about his past, but about his present. And what we're going to see here, here's the third characteristic of someone who has been rescued. Desperate confidence. Desperate confidence. What we're going to find in this next section is that David has fallen into another pit. 
And there wasn't just one miry clay bog that he found himself in. God did set his feet on a rock, but as he was going along, he found himself in another pit. Verse 11, he says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. Remember back in verse 5, he was saying about God's good deeds were beyond number? Now he's saying in verse 12, the evil around me, and also the evil inside of me. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me. That means they've gone over my head. I, I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. He's fallen into another pit. And we need to be clear about this. That when you give your life to Jesus Christ, he initially rescues you out of whatever pit you found yourself in, doesn't he? The 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 ultimate pit, the pit that we deserve for our sin, the, 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 the way that we fall in because of our disobedience. And he rescues us and sets our feet on the rock. But sometimes we get the wrong assumption that oh, I was rescued once, I never need to be rescued again. That was part of my past, but that won't be part of my future. You need to understand that there's pits coming our way. Sometimes it happens because of our sin. Sometimes it happens because of the sovereignty of God. We find ourselves falling into pits time and time again. Don't be surprised when trials come into our lives. But he calls out, again, he finds himself in a desperate situation, but he calls out with desperate confidence. Go back to verse 11. When we look at verse 11 at first, we think it's a prayer request. God, please don't restrain your mercy from me. It's not, it's not a request, it's a statement. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. He's learned from his past. He's seen God come through before, so now he can look at his present and his future and say, I know who God is. He rescued me before. He will rescue me again. So we have this incredible confidence in the midst of desperation. Keep reading in verse 13 and 14. It says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek, who, who snatch away, who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Just like we see so many times in the psalm. Whenever David falls, there's a whole bunch of people who want to kick him while he's down. Whenever he finds himself in a pit, rather than people reaching down to help him, there's people who are standing back and saying, aha, aha. I can't believe he did that. I'm so much better than him. I'm a... I'm a good person. He's obviously a bad person because he's suffering in that way. And David says, let, let those people, God. I can't deal with those people. I can't shout at them from the midst of the pit. But God, would you silence them? You see, it's so foolish for us to look at someone who's fallen into a pit. It's the scorn of fools, like Psalm 39, to say that you know better. To say that you would have done better. It's only by the grace of God if you find yourself on solid ground right now. The only reason you're on solid ground is because God picked you up out of a pit and put you on solid ground. So don't be saying, aha, aha. Because when you're saying, aha, aha, what you're saying is, I am great, and I am self-righteous, and self-sufficient, and self-superior, and these, these bad people down here are the kind that fall into a pit. It's, it's rooted in pride. And, and pride is a clear sign that someone doesn't understand the fact that God is a rescuer. 
Because here's the last characteristic. Someone who has truly been rescued will be characterized by authentic humility. Authentic humility. Rather than saying, I'm great, look at what the truly authentic person says. Verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. When you know that God is the kind of God who rescues people from pits, you stop saying, I'm great, because we're the ones who keep falling into the pits. We don't say, I'm great. We say, God is great. That's where true humility comes from. Humility is not focused on yourself. It's focused on God. Humility is not saying how lame or bad or weak or feeble you are yourself. It's saying how great God is. Look how this plays out in verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy. As for me, I am poor and needy. Authentic humility acknowledges that I am poor and needy. Just let me back up a little bit. So the psalmist says it, so we should say it. So let's say it together right now. You ready? One, two, three. I am poor and needy. It's hard to say, isn't it? It's hard to acknowledge that. And it's important that we do. But it's important that we do acknowledge it in the context of the sentence in which it's found. Some of us get on this poor and needy track and we can't get off. And we keep talking about how bad our circumstances are and how sinful we are and how bad people we are. And we just fall in from pit to pit. I'm poor and needy and needy and poor and needy and poor and poor and needy. But we miss the fact that there isn't a period after poor and needy. The sentence goes on. So read it with me. Let's all read it together. I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. That's the whole sentence. Yes, we are poor and needy, but there's a very important but there. We see this all throughout the Bible. But the Lord, but God. So yes, we are poor and needy. We are humble people. We don't boast about ourselves, but we don't obsess about our weaknesses either. Because the Lord has taken thought of me. And so we can have an honest reflection on our life. We can look at ourselves in in our pits in the present or the past and acknowledge, you know what, I'm so messed up. But the truth is, I'm so loved. And as soon as we acknowledge that we're messed up, we should acknowledge that we're loved. And the only reason why we get messed up is because we lose sight of the fact that we are loved. And that God does take sight of us. We forget our identity in Christ. And that we have been cleansed. So why are we back in the muck and the mire? This is the kind of God that we serve. A God that produces in us desperate confidence and authentic humility. Those two things normally don't go together, do they? We think that confident people are like the opposite of humble people. But Psalm 40 has both. We can be confident. Why? Because it's not about us. It's about the Lord. It's about Him and the fact that He rescues us and that causes us to rejoice. And then the psalm goes on to say in verse seven, at the end of verse 17, You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. And so listen, if you're here today and you're in a pit, reflect on past pits. Reflect on how God had come through for you in the past. Be confident. Earnestly cry out to him. Humbly plead with him. Acknowledge your neediness, but also acknowledge that he is inclined. He is leaning forward to listen to you because he has taken, he has taken thought of you. And he will not delay. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to impress these truths on our hearts right now. God, I pray especially for the brother or the sister right now who 
feels like they're in a pit and that there's no way out. God, I, I pray, Lord, that they, would, that they would know that you are leaning forward, reaching down, that you will not delay. And God, I pray that we would be a people who are trusting in you, that we would be a people who love you, that we would be a people who know what it's like to have been rescued. God, I pray for authentic humility in our midst. I pray that our eyes would be off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, that we would say with the psalmist, great is the Lord, that we would marvel that in our poverty and in our neediness that you would think of us and reach down and rescue us. Draw us close to you, we pray. Reach down to us, we pray, and rescue us. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.